Hey there, film fans. I'm Jeff. I'm Dave. And I'm John, and welcome back to The Love of Cinema, a pod in which we'll challenge one another to discuss movies, both new and old, with a strictly positive critical eye. That's right. And to keep us positive and make sure to avoid lazy negativity, we have decided to make this episode a drinking game. <laughs> so anytime we say anything negative about a film at all, we're going to play this sound. <clears throat> that sound means that we have to take a drink, and we hope you drink along with us at home. So... Pour yourselves a glass. It was a dark time, kids. We're going back to 1985. There was no Venmo, no ATMs. If you didn't have money and the sun went down, you just didn't have fucking money. Fuck, man. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> Cheers, boys. True. Cheers. That's right. We are talking about Martin Scorsese's After Hours, a movie that John recommended, and I certainly didn't know it was Martin Scorsese's. Also, we recommended a different movie that is not available to rent anywhere ever in the world, but we are talking about 1985 <laughs> movies. And what was the movie that we couldn't find? To Live and Die in L.A. by why, William Friedkin. Why, why can't you even find it anyway? It's, pro- it's probably like Dogma. Weinstein's probably sitting on the fucking rights for it. Oh, great. Oh, come on. Well, he, he's going to be... Just for mentioning no, that name. No, that's real, dude. He's, he's sitting on the rights to Dogma. He won't fucking release it. Yeah, but no, no I know. I know. Um, I, I believe you. I'm just... I'm just it is I have a chill down my spine now because of that, so... Who released... Who owns To Live and Die in L.A.? We'll never know. Film, film cast listeners, tell us who owns it. Um, yeah, curious to know. But yes, yeah, Scorsese, 1985. So we're going to be talking a little bit about some Scorsese films, at least, you know, because um, Killers of the Flower Moon is coming out. Guys, guess what? It is just a few minutes shy of an Irishman. That's right. It's <laughs> yep. coming in at like three hours 26? and 26 minutes. It has a $200 million budget. It was supposed to come out October 6th, but they bumped it Is somebody it to laundering money? Yeah. Somebody, yeah, well, like, <laughs> yeah, where does the money how, come from? How is is this going to make 200 million? Is like, is this well, Dave? I think, not... um, talk to your striking unions because it is a co pro with Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus doesn't they don't abide by the usual structures, hence why you know we need to have more transparency and things. Um, but it was actually originally supposed to come out on October 6th, Apple TV Plus, October 20th. Um, but then they decided to just do a worldwide release October 20th, perhaps because even though it's really fucking long. I think it's getting such good reviews through Khan, through the Alice Tully Hall premiere where there was no cast, obviously because of the strike, and uh, Leo ain't no snitch. Snitch mean, the right word? Scab. scab. He ain't no scab. Shut up. Scab. <laughs> but anyway, I that's coming out soon. Correcting so... Jeff when he's a dickhead now. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah. So anyway, I'm drinking this beer with a bottle Caroni. cap on it. Anyway, I think it's a really yeah, good time. <laughs> I think it's a really good time for us to talk about this movie. Also, have you guys noticed that um, Martin Scorsese, with all of his quotes in the press, is he turning into the Bernie Sanders of cinema? He, uh, The latest one that he came out with, he kind of pulled it back a little bit because he was saying about how like it, our, our movies of the last 90 years or so good. Yes, I think so because I'm old. But you kids are doing something different and that's okay too. So he kind of he kind of didn't do the grumpy old man get off my lawn gatekeeping thing he's been doing, but he's still very concerned about the future of cinema. So I'm willing to let him slide on yeah. some of the stuff he said. The films are. I am content. 100% Team Scorsese on this. Did I share that GQ <laughs> article with you guys? He basically said, like, the way he the way he said what you're saying, Dave, is he was like the industry that I came about in no longer exists. That would be like yeah, right. when I was coming up asking a silent movie director 
what do you think of it? It doesn't exist anymore. It's just a different industry. Later in the article, the, the article isn't about this, but the interviewer eventually did kind of bring him back and say, you know, you got into hot water for saying that stuff several years ago. Do you still feel the same way? And he said, yeah, you know, I mean, I, it's still going to be up to filmmakers. He, he made this point, which I thought was good. And he didn't put it in this exact context, but I'm going to do it because I think this is what he meant. He was just saying, sometimes people look back on my generation and think that's just what Hollywood was then. That's not true. It only became that because filmmakers like me and my friends <clears> fought <throat> for stories that we thought were important and aimed at adults and aimed at trying to push the medium forward. And we weren't just doing what was popular for Hollywood at the time. That was the antithesis of what we were doing. So he was just still trying to make the point that the future of cinema is always up to what cinema uh, filmmakers are willing to fight for. You can't let the audiences wag the dog. You know, you can't let the technology, the audiences, the studios, nothing is going to make art better by that. So I thought it was it was refreshing just to hear him say that. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of shed a tear at the end of it. I think I took people like him for granted my entire childhood. I thought that was what Hollywood was. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That's what Hollywood was. <laughs> it was. And I just took it. It's just not true. The, honestly, the bulk of his article, and it's funny that we're going to be talking about a movie from the 80s when he was making almost exclusively studio movies, if you will. He kind of is, this article is him looking back on his life, basically saying, I never fit into Hollywood. And when I tried to, I made crap. And he wasn't saying I made crap, but he was saying I wasn't this, making this the movies was... that I wanted to make. I After like Hours I sometimes... is indie, isn't it? It's a United Artists release, and I think it was released, I think it still had studio backing by... We, can, we should look that up. But I feel mm. like most of his, of, of his uh, starting with um, starting with After Hours, I think. After Hours into Goodfellas, into Cape Fear. A lot of these were backed by his studios. I feel like Raging Bull was the last one that he that he totally made on his own. But I, I don't know. I don't, I don't even want to go there because I'm sure there was always financial things that weren't they weren't coming that aren't completely known to the public and stuff. So I, 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 don't I am I am scrolling thing. back. It's just taking me this long to get through his fucking body of work. So. Yeah, he's made, uh, he's made quite a bit. There are only four build producers, one of which is an associate producer. So Robert Colesbury. Griffin Dunn and A.B. Robinson are the only producers of this film with Deborah Schindler as a associate producer. Is that possible to only have four producers on a film? I mean, I, yeah, yeah, that's definitely possible. I mean, there's usually not that many producers who are actually creative producing. Right. Much more likely that there's a lot of executive producers. Uh, the Geffen Company, so I would imagine this was some that would, independent that would, production arm I mean, of David was, Geffen's company. Well, that would have been uh, distributor. Um, I think Double Play. So was this the... is probably yeah. So I, yeah, don't the, the point of what I, yeah. Let's not take me at my word on whether or not this was independent or not. He was trying to make the comment that, and I, and I think it's true that sometimes I think my generation, at least, and I think Dave, you would subscribe to this as well. He was just so successful and critically that we kind of assumed that he was one of the Hollywood tentpoles. And he's just never seen himself that way. And I just hmm. thought that was good to think about right now, where right now, I think we think of tentpoles related to IP and subject matter, not directors, right? Like Unless Spielberg gets franchises thrown around. And maybe still Spielberg, but maybe yeah. not, yeah. right? I mean, even he is kind of like a an outlier I mean, in a sense that he doesn't we, make we do sequels. To, we do to he some, make some extent. Like, I'm still trying to say the creator simply because I know like Gareth Ibbis did it. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, but I think that's niche. I don't and, think most people know his name. And but they uh, hopefully saw that trailer. Like, I will go and see anything Edgar Wright fucking does. So, like, it's that there are the still average person. Yeah, not the, the average, average person. person doesn't know who those guys are. The way well, that I'll, ta- I'll take that compliment. Person, <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> the average person knew who Martin Scorsese was, though. He was a household name. So, is that hmm. a way of looking at it? Is the household name director a consequence of a time of that group of him and his brats? The movie Brats, Friends, Coppola, Spielberg, De Palma, Scorsese. De, um, well, the really funny thing is that were... that comment that I said he made, um, Edgar Wright was actually interviewing him for that. So. Oh, did he? Did he do another one recently? Yeah. yeah this one another one. This, no, his... this one came out over the weekend. Okay. Because oh, nice. he did one. It was in GQ that got quoted a lot for his 81st mm. birthday. And him just kind of said, the movie's coming out, but also he just turned 81, just kind of reflecting. So Edgar Wright talked to him recently as well. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Yeah, he pissed off oh. a bunch of young people with his fucking superhero comments, didn't he? Well, you know, you get, people get emotional over Marvel until, until like, then Marvel proceeded to become exactly what he said it was. I feel yeah, like I was to say, it must be yeah. tough that he's right. He was fucking right on the money. He I was... feel like people know. We all cop that. I feel like people know, and even people who sit there and be like, you know, this is more like a video game or a theme, an amusement park than cinema. A lot of people are basically saying, yes, but I like Six Flags. I feel like that's the pushback. Well, that's the you know thing. That, I mean? that's sort of, they know that's it's sort of, right, but, yeah, that's, but that's Six sort of Flags cinema has, has its merits too, and it's very entertaining, and it makes a lot of money and stuff like that. But again you know the different reaction when you walk out of you know an average Guys, marvel film nobody which we has now have. ever said chocolate cake wasn't fun to eat nobody yeah. has ever said that you know like, doritos are delicious chicken wings are fucking awesome yeah you can't eat that all the time you know it's just that's just and i feel like that's his only argument we're just kind of swamped by it right now and it, nobody and, can say that it hasn't had a massive impact on the industry you know i know we're watching changes happening right now but guys Jeff and I graduated from college a few years after the first Iron Man came out. So you and I have been a professionals in the artistic world, performing arts world. And Dave, I'm sure you felt like you have been able to witness the transition from 90s, 2000s into this 15 years or so that I'm talking about now. There's a it's gigantic generous. fucking change. I also witnessed change. the 80s to 90s. <laughs> I know you witnessed it, but you weren't working in it. You were no. you, right. You were like a like the way Jeff. And I, so I feel like there is a a massive shift, and I think it would be naive to say that it, there wasn't some association with how incredibly uh, singular the success has been for a handful of franchises, and how it has left other movies to a very niche part mm. of the year's release. And the Oscars well, he, are now I mean, this thing that we all kind of collectively just say, and eh, those are pretentious elitist movies and they don't really yeah, make their I money mean, back. And- he's he's absolutely right about the franchise thing, though. Like, like I remember I said last week there were two movies recently that for the first time in 10 years were not part of a franchise. And that I re- I now know, I like I remembered now, that is was Barbie and Oppenheimer, one and two, right. the top one and two movies. It was the first time in 10 years they hadn't been part of a franchise. The number really one and two stat. movies, yeah, was, and they were really still commercials. They were aimed at a summer blockbuster group. So even then, like, there hasn't been a single summer blockbuster that either wasn't marketed or made successfully, or was not mm. even attempted to do those things successfully. I, I feel like in Oppenheimer. Decade, I feel crazy. like Oppenheimer wasn't aimed at anything. It was just like I'm going to make this and fuck you. 
There's any people who like big, loud things and good cinema. Yeah. <laughs> and as much dialogue as you could possibly squeeze into three hours. Um, I love that movie. So, guys... Jeff Fantastic conversation. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, well, yeah, we're yeah. gonna so we're gonna talk. We're gonna set up 1985, which I don't have too many notes about what the 1985 year was. Good, like I'm excited to hear the year, just a little bit. Um, and we're gonna talk a little bit about our Scorsese. Who who we are, like? What what kind of Scorsese fan are we? Are we at, what, what's our era? Do we love the 70s? Do we love this period in the 80s? Here, are we an early 90s fan, or do we like Grandpa Marty? Hugo looked great. <laughs> Hugo is a pretty film. And don't you try to tell me Departed wasn't great. I hate when people say that. Yeah, but it's not good, fellas. Shut up. Shut up. God, yeah, when Jack yeah. fucking squeezes Leo's broken ass arm and shatters it on the table, don't you tell me that movie's not good, fellas. Shut Are up. you a cop? Are you a cop? <laughs> yeah, when he's screaming. Hey, he fell funny. Come on. He fell funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys. 85. 1985. Oh, my God. That's good. What was happening in the year 1985? Do you remember from our our summer blockbuster face-off where, for you, listener, we went through all of the highest-grossing summer blockbusters from 1980 until 2019, and we pitted them against each other, threw in Jaws and Star Wars for fun, and we decided what the greatest summer blockbuster of all time was. Just as a reminder, just to, the Parent Trap just is to, not a summer blockbuster. Yeah, Sarah, we're talking to you. Just to kick us off, I was conceived in 1985. Whoa! Uh, on yeah. tax day, if I remember correctly. Um, so probably let's... at a drive-in at this movie. <laughs> um, oh, I don't think I don't think very many people were conceived. That would be awesome around this movie. That would be, it would explain so much. So much. Nineteen eighty-five. Does anybody remember the highest? grossing summer blockbuster in uh, which was I think the I can guess <laughs> yeah right <laughs> Back to the Future hell yeah Back to the Future was the highest grossing movie this year um, so um, basically after Steven Spielberg with E.T. and Close Encounters and those kinds of um, you know fantasy and sci-fi films uh, a lot of studios were really going nuts after the big fantasy and sci-fi era so we have Return to Oz The Black Cauldron Weird science, real genius, my science project, and most of them failed. Most of them failed miserably, miserably, miserably. But yeah. that was sort of the grab. Real, at the weird time science was a frat boy comedy. That wasn't sci-fi. <laughs> Fuck, I took my thing's gone because I'm looking at it. Yeah, there you go. Found it. Another thing that's very interesting is that ticket sales were down significantly from 1985, from 1984. I mean, it was down 17%. And oh my God, shocking. Industry executives believed that the problem was in part due to lack of original concepts. What a fucking nightmare, they, don't guys. Don't they roll that out every year to try and blame that? Well, if whenever there's a dip, for sure. Yeah. But if you look, I mean, if you look people, at some of this stuff. Pause for just a second, and let's give people some context that is important when you're talking about movies in this decade. Because Michael Cimino and Martin Scorsese and Michael Cimino both had a movie come out in 1980. Jeff, what were they? Um, well, Raging Bull. And? And the movie that lost, don't tell me, don't tell me, don't you fucking tell me. It's the movie that lost all the money that destroyed um, uh, Heaven's Gate. Yeah, fuck Heaven's yeah. Heaven's Gate. <laughs> there you go. So like, that, and everybody cites that as the end of what we call the new Hollywood era in the 70s. And I can't remember the art, the movie, the, uh, the studio that released it. Um, they released... Um, Heaven's Gate, but it lost a lot of money and it like basically tanked the studio. Yeah. And this was one of the only times that they, not the only time, but it was one of the 
the many times over that decade the the whole final cut mindset scenario contract and marketing around director-driven storytelling it was like the last straw so they came into this decade there were also a lot of not inconsequentially i think and also not coincidentally there were a lot of mergers and acquisitions that happened at this period of time moving into the 80s. He says murder. He says mergers, did we see, not murders. Did, we hear, did I hear murders <laughs> of acquisitions? Yeah, yeah. I, I, did I say what murders? Did I get oh, oh, it up. sounded like he did, but I'm pretty sure he said I mergers. I thought I said murders. Oh, you know, business lingo. Here, here. So th- this is one of the first times that it's not that the studios were not studios anymore. They were still studios but they were very famously run by very popular large corporations at this time. And the culture had shifted away from, yes, they might still be owned from corporations, but let's let the directors do their thing or, or producers do their thing. Now that they were they were being much more closely watched and the they were seen as another asset as opposed to kind of a fun thing to own the way they were in the 60s and 70s from major companies like when Gulf Western... Uh, owned Paramount during The Godfather and that whole era. There they were still corporations that owned them after the studios broken up, but this is the first time that they were starting to be seen as we now still see them, which is basically they need to answer to our bottom line. They are technically accountable to shareholders. So moving out of the culture of the new Hollywood director-driven storytelling, we are in a decade where studios were relying very much as we are now on familiar stories, stories with the pre-existing IP, if they were a best-selling novel, they had to have action involved, sex scenes. You know, there was a lot of like, you know, things that are going to be predictably marketable. And yet the irony is exactly what Jeff was saying. There was this weird thing that was happening where sometimes commercial cinema did well. And there were obviously there were movies like fucking Back to the Future and yeah, which Return had almost of none of those things. And yeah, sure. <laughs> had almost none of those things. That did seem to break through and do really fucking well. And franchises, they were eaten up when these things were made. But there was also a very large gaping hole in the world of original ideas because they weren't developing them. They didn't yeah. believe in them as much. So there was the strange irony of his existence. That transition from the 70s into the 80s got really fucking weird because you had stuff like Porkies and Screwballs and all that sort of thing coming out, yep. which was basically just the Americanized version of the British carry-on films. Only they took it a yeah. little further. And, it, and, it was, they, and they, they just, they they just made a ton cats. of them. Yeah. That's the yeah. I was just about to say. That was the thing. Eat it up and sell it again. It was like the McDonaldization of the whole the sequel culture got way out of hand right mm. like it was like we have these great r-rated adult comedies the 80s did have a lot of those let's give them that this, they, they yeah. did not seem to fall off the way they did with other more dramatic storytelling from the 70s a lot of good 70s adult comedy a lot of good 80s adult comedy but they made so many of them that people started seeing the movies as trash yeah. Honestly, like it's a it's a kind of a trash decade. A it's, lot of people don't look at it yeah. as something. Yeah. It wasn't worth something you went to watch. It was something you went and sat in the vicinity of. Which is such a shame because there were still yeah. a lot of people that we were fucking brilliant in the seventies that were still making movies in their prime, in the eighties. So Jeff, sorry, mm. continue, please. Bomb and stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, that's basically like this the pitch. You know, we were debating between seeing movies like um, *To Live and Die in L.A.*, like <laughs> *Brazil*. Did you hear that? Sorry, did y'all hear that? Yeah, what was no, that? Somebody's, there's a woman 
I guess having lots of fun with her roommates. They're like screaming at each other in the next room, but it doesn't sound violent or anything. Just making um, sure. Does it sound dirty? Um, I think they're having a party anyway, or something. Anyway. If you are a fan of our podcast, and I hope you are, we uh, already did a, a film, a Movies of the Year of 1985 way back in the day. We did Witness. We did Kiss of the Spider Woman. And then I forget what our bad movie was. I just, I don't remember what the, what the, the other movie we might I mean, have only 80, done 85 it wouldn't have been hard to find one yeah <laughs> oh come on come on um, there are um, there was some crap other movies like 85 like like out of africa that city pollock's film um t- made a ton it won a ton of oscars and stuff it's very long it's not it didn't age well it's kind of boring if you ever try to watch it meryl streep's obviously brilliant robert redford's just got those eyes it's got those bread pit eyes but uh, meryl streep's fantastic movie. He's just fucking long man um john houston's preetzi's honor is in there too which is fun purple rose of cairo trip to bountiful white knights the dancing movie white knights is in there and john i mean we were kind of ho- I-, I think ron would have been fun I'm glad that Dave picked the movie that's half as long. <laughs> but uh, Kurosawa's last <laughs> full Kurosawa's film. Kurosawa's run. run, yeah. Yeah, 1985. And that is available for Prime. If you have a subscription, no rental needed for that one. Um, Jump on it. And we got the Goonies, of course. Yeah, that's it, Goonies. Yeah, anything else you guys see in there? I want to call out um, Elim Kimoff's war drama, Come and See. If you're in like the cinephile, cinephile world, that is a absolute tentpole uh, seen through the eyes of a child. Um uh, World War II drama. It's pretty intense. But yeah, Breakfast Club, did we call that out? John Hughes is still rocking and rolling. This was maybe when he put his stake in the ground is like, mm. I'm not a one, I'm not every now and then, I'm somebody, every fucking time I make a movie, people are going to be talking about it. And I can make a movie that is going to be critically acclaimed as well. And, and it's not and, just well, Breakfast really Club fun is and entertaining. one of the collection that aged well. Some didn't. We almost did that, film fans, and maybe maybe we should have done it. That would have been a fun one to revisit. Clue, wanted to call oh, that out. I just saw Clue. It's so good. It's so good. And uh, I wanted to call out just because I've never seen it before. Um, my buddy, who's a big horror fan, I know Dave. Dave and I were talking about maybe doing. Some oh horror yeah, we'll Fright do some horror a little bit later. Fright Night. Yeah, everybody yeah. says it's so good. Adam, if you're listening, dude, I still haven't seen it, and he's been I, telling I me to watch pitched, it for years. I pitched Fright Night. I know you did. I just didn't want to do <laughs> horror yet. Just doesn't have the same legs. Oh, I got to call this out, you guys, because there's a Friday the 13th in here. When is a new beginning? Dave, do you know which version? What, is that the second or the third or the fourth? I, or the uh, no, God, that's like the eighth or something, isn't it? Guys, I took, I picked up somebody who was, we were working on set the other day on somebody's film, a uh, hair and makeup artist, really into special effects makeup. They were talking to me about how they like horror movies and stuff at Halloween. You know, of course, we're just chit-chatting in our car ride. And at the very end of the day, I was like, so what's your favorite horror movie? And she was like, oh, it's probably, probably Friday the 13th. Like, no, I'm, God, I'm fucking it up already. Friday the 13th is Jason. Sorry. She said, oh, it's probably Nightmare on Elm Street. I was like, oh, cool. The first one? And she was like, yeah, it's probably the first one. And Robert England is my uncle. And I was like, what? Yeah, out that. of yeah. here. What the fuck? You didn't fucking, we've been sitting here talking about like horror movies all day. And you didn't slip it in. He's he fucking... he he one of my favorite people in the world. So, so cool. That's, that's, that's awesome. So you, fucking feel, cool, if dude. you see them again, feel free to point out that that is one of my favorite people in the world. I think I did literally say like my, my coach is going to be so jealous. Oh yeah, to I'm seg- fucking pissed. That's so cool. 
to segue just, back to this, just, so just Friday, to, just to throw yeah. back our 1985 episode we did last time, um, yeah. the was it really that bad was National Lampoon's European Vacation. Europe, the, oh, that was fun. We had fun with that. Okay, <laughs> it was not that pretty, bad, right? And I'm really sure we redeemed best. it. Yeah, we redeemed it. It had bad reviews, but we redeemed it. I was it. thinking about his leader hose dance when he punches the guy. I was thinking about <laughs> that the other day. That sequence. Um, Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, was actually, I believe, the fifth movie. So it goes 1980, Friday the 13th, 1981, part two, 82, part three. That's three Friday the 13ths in three years. Fucking man, go get them. 1984, they do Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Ah, the full lies. Lies. 1984. Lies. 1985. When did we do Jason X? <laughs> yeah, right? Oh, my God. Oh, so, God yeah, they, just, they let famous. it rip. Um, that but, is yeah. that is kind of exactly what we're talking about, isn't it? Let's also, but in a fun way, I'm not picking on our horror film fan fans. Mm. Um, Slasher fucking exploded in the '80s, so you had yeah. movies like that that brought a, I mean, a whole also, slew of young people to the theater. I feel like horror is a is a diff, is a different beast. Like a sequel in horror is completely fine, and you want it. Like you want to get mm. to Jason X. Mm-hmm. Um, because the horror fans just love this shit, and it, it's great. And like, it it is. It's I didn't a ride. know I it, it's wanted Jason X, time. but maybe you're right. <laughs> I think. Dude. Yeah, maybe. maybe also, you're right, dude. also in in the eighties, because it was also. I feel like that it was just the tone, and and this is kind of segueing back into this movie, because like I did, I, I still don't really understand how De Palma is on the same page as like a Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas, um, Coppola. Like he's always in that group Tarantino and I'm like he... says he's the best of their group. and I know and that's what's so he crazy fights for them um and so so you he has Carrie we all know Carrie yeah yeah from 76 and then he has the Fury in 78 home movies is tanked in 79 but then dress to kill 80 blowout 81 obviously we all know Scarface in 83 Blowout's Bo- awesome body yeah. double in 84 and then he fucking does the Bruce Springsteen dancing in the dark video <laughs> In 1984. Oh, did he do that? God, yeah, yeah. Wise guys, and then Untouchables in the 80s. Untouchable in 87. More more Springsteen videos. And then eventually Casualties of Wars to end the 80s. But just like how all of those covers on their on the posters are black. Every single one of them is just a dark cover. Like it's just this is just that era. It's almost like people that are like, the 80s are awesome. And it's like, yeah, it's just big hair and noise. And it's like, no, bro, have you ever listened to Poison? Have you ever listened to White Snake? And it's like, yeah, it was noise and hair. And it's like, no, it wasn't. And it's like, yeah. okay, fine, fuck, whatever. Um, but I feel like that's what this era was. So when this movie started, as we're segueing into Martin Scorsese's After Hour Hours, I loved The King of Comedy in 1983. And I fucking love Raging Bull in 1980. And this is the next one. So if you're following yeah. in the sequence, so to pause there, and, and, and it's supposed to be kind of like a Hitchcock, like an ode to Hitchcock and that, that kind of style. Um, of some of the shots are just obviously ripoffs of Hitchcock in a fun way. He's obviously having fun. But I was actually watching this and I was like, is he making a De Palma movie? Like, did him and De Palma just like smoke weed and make this movie? Not that Martin would ever do that, but nice to to set up our to set up our pitch here. Let's let's air out our biases of where we're at with Scorsese. We obviously think he's great. What is your Scorsese era? Are you a '70s purist? Do you love the early '90s where he just fucking bangs out? I love Cape Fear, Goodfellas, Casino. Do you love that era? Where are you guys stand, Dave? What? What? Where are you? With your Scorsese, who is your? I, I have uh, cross generation ones. Um, the bad right. music video. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, and through Cape Fear, he got me again, and then departed in Shutter Island. That's oh, that's, that's my era. Wow, Dave. You know he cited in that GQ article that not saying he wished he hadn't done it. Yeah. What is that thing? But what he is the wanted to work on Silence when he made and instead 
he felt pressured to do right shutter island yeah he kind of felt like he shouldn't have made shutter island he was just saying i don't know if i should have done that shutter island is one of those ones where he was just completely uncompromising it's like this is going to be fucking weird folks and if you're not for it yeah it's not for you like it was it was uncompromising filmmaking dave list list your four again um the bad music video cape fear late 80s departed and shutter island all right yeah interesting although i am gonna call you out buddy departed got me in one shot you said so many positive things when we did 1976 when we did taxi driver yeah yeah but it's not your but not your it's not like your favorite yeah Okay. okay okay Okay. Are you a are you a network over time? Because we also did network. We decided to fucking go for it in 1976. Like, right. Taxi driver and network. Are you a network fan in that that competition there, Dave? I did like network. Yeah. To... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Neither one. Neither one is tickling his fancy. Yeah. What the hell, Dave? How, yeah, yeah. I, I liked see, it. I, I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. I Dave, what was, what was your shot in The Departed? What's your shot? Um, it's the shot when uh, Jack gets up from the table and just spins, and the oh. camera spins the opposite way, and they just lock. And he walks mm. like he, he just it's Jack in motion and the camera he's moving with the camera and he hits his fucking mark and he's just like, oh, I'm sitting there the with the camera you. spins away from him and they meet each other. Yeah, that's a fucking Scorsese staple move. God, yeah. I love when he does that. Turn yeah. away from the subject, meet him on the other side. That's so much fun. John, sweet. I'll go next. Uh, probably won't be surprised, but it's. It's the seventies for me. That said, I mean, I like like I said, like he was he was a staple when I was growing up. So I love all those films from the nineties and and I've never really relinquished. I I've enjoyed watching his evolution. But when I was a kid, I mean I I have vivid memories. The way I watched his movies when I was a child was I would pretend I was going to bed and my parents would put on they would rent his movies and I would watch them and I would sneak downstairs and watch them behind him. That's how I watched Goodfellas. That's how I watched Casino. That's how I watched all of his movies before I was old enough to, you know, rent those kind of things on my own. So, yeah, the early 90s for sure had a big impact on me because I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know you could show that kind of stuff. You know, I was like a young boy watching that. But as an adult, as soon as and as an actor, especially just falling in love with his work with De Niro and Helen Bernstein in the 70s. I mean, he was just he was he was the tip of the spear. For me with those guys like the godfather is is something else it almost exists away from those it's almost like coppola was a little older than them and doing something else that was a little bit more classic cinema i feel like scorsese was was it for me when i started like really studying what what that generation of actors was starting to do in 70s cinema for me it was just there were scorsese movies how about you i I'm still haunted by every time Joe Pesci's died in a movie. Those all of them are so terrible. It's yeah. a toe frying. It's just like Casino. it haunts my dreams. Oh my god! Oh. God damn it, yeah, dude. that one hurt. <laughs> I mean, obviously the Goodfellas demise. I rewatched Goodfellas recently because I never even put it in my top five, and then I rewatched it recently, and I was like, oh my god, this movie. Your top so five for Scorsese? Yeah, I never even put it in my top five Scorsese. Oh, I it's good. It's a, I know, I know, Ow. I know. Ow. It's not in Dave's. Anyway, I um, yeah, I should watch it someday. It's it's taxi driver. Oh, it's so good. Taxi it's taxi so driver. It's taxi drivers is your number one. You know, I, I I lived most of my life thinking it was Raging Bull. I don't know why, man. His psyche, the way it evolves over the film, but um, all the scenes. You fuck my wife. <laughs> you fuck my wife. You fuck my fucking wife. The way he smiles after he screams at them, and Joe Pesci. The contrast. Is just... The contrast between the cinematography and the storytelling 
outside of the boxing ring. Oh yeah, and the expressionistic oh, so lot, yeah. craziness in the box. Who gets away with that? Only Scorsese. We would be like, "What is this director doing?" If it was anybody else, yeah, like, this is not the same movie. What are they doing? He just he gets away with it. Dude. And I love me. I I love Mean Streets, obviously, but I feel like certain scenes pop more than others in a way. There's some of those those De Niro scenes. It's like, I would have, if I didn't borrow money from you, I wouldn't have any money to borrow money from. And the way, I'm like, little, he's I'm, like, I'm feeling fine, my friend. How are you? You know, and it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh God. God, he's right. so good in the movie. Anyway, we're, um, we're 30 minutes in. At let's some just point, call we should it Scorsese. Also, let's just fucking, let's just do it. Dave, did you fuck my wife? Uh, also, my friend Jordan Ellis sent me a message this week, not knowing we were doing this movie, and says, Do you have a full blown erection for Killers of the Flower Moon? That's it. That's, just, that's what he said for me. Um, so, Jordan. Shout Woo! out, friend of the pod. Um, so excited to see that. And the answer was yes. <laughs> I might also be, I'm just going to call this out too, because I think we've had a disagreement on the show before about it, and I've definitely had disagreements about it in life. I might be one of the only people on earth, and I'll stand by it. I think The Irishman is a masterpiece. Me too. I like no, was, I love it. I love it. The technology is a frustrating obstacle, and I understand why people were, were hung up about it. But I think it's an absolute fucking genius masterpiece yeah. piece of cinema, and totally. it has not gotten the love it deserves. Yeah. So I hope Killers does because yeah. it's another really long one. But I she, think a lot Dave, of people didn't watch it. Yeah. But she, but she, and guys, Brad Pitt. That's category fraud. Pacino should have won that Oscar. He was so fucking good, man. He God was so Almighty, good. dude. Oh when my you God, see he's a, so good. When dude. you see a gun, you go forward. When you see a knife, you run. What is that scene where like in that scene in the courthouse? God, he's so good. But you're right. When he sat down like oh. an 80 year old man and he has like the 40 year old face, it's just, it's really weird. Um, I but get yeah. It. I know. But God damn it, I love it. And I also really shout out to Cape Fear and of course the King of Comedy, which this comes right after. So mm. let's get into it, people. After Hours, 1985. You know the pitch, except I'll add it only made $10 million worldwide. All of it was domestic on a $4.5 billion budget. He made this fucking fast. Part of the reason he did this uh, Temptation of Christ, his lawyers <laughs> apparently told him, anyway, he, he, had, he had cold feet. And so he decided to do this and he wanted to shoot it like he shot Taxi Driver, like he shot Mean Streets. He wanted it to be fucking shotgun cinema. He wanted to go. He shot it fast. Clifton Dunn, his lead, was also a co-producer. So it was a very small set. And he just fucking went. He did shit like he actually filmed him, apparently not paying a bill and then just having the camera going outside. So you see the person actually running away from literally like a crime. <laughs> I mean, like he was doing stupid shit like that. And if you watch this on Prime, like I did, I rented it. Before I even started the movie, a fucking trivia thing from IMDb pops up that says Martin Scorsese wouldn't let Griffin Dunn have sex or sleep so that he would have a more realistic paranoia. And I'm like, oh great, this movie hasn't even started. And I know this guy's sex deprived. This is wow. gonna be a great film. Yeah. Is I mean is he making a movie or playing football? Jesus. <laughs> I think it's boxing. boxing. I, I feel that. like I always yeah. associate um, that with boxing. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah it's the boxing. Yeah. Yeah. Bang bang before the what is that from? You see it in Creed. <laughs> in in Creed, uh uh Stallone goes up to um Tessa uh, and he hey, very kindly he goes he goes, Hey, um he goes, and just so you know, you're not supposed to uh <laughs> and she yeah, goes, I'll yeah. ask you for that motherfucker. <laughs> He goes to them, he goes, you know, you're not supposed to, just so you know. And then they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, okay. You know, you know, it's both of them. So <laughs> I'll do it again. <laughs> working titles are Worst Night Ever or One Night in Soho. It's, this is a fucking, it's a really fun, Scorsese was having fun. He decided to have some fun. He certainly wasn't playing for Oscars and he certainly wasn't playing to a studio. And he made this fucking movie in 1985. Let me give you the IMDb description of what this movie is about. 
and then I'm going to kick it off to you for your initial thoughts and reactions. What do you think? What do you feel? An ordinary word processor, Griffin Dunn. I think I called him Clifton Dunn, who is an Back actor. Back when that people did a film not had that time. title. Yeah. Not a career, but yeah. Kids? Yeah. Are you? Yeah. If there are any processor? children listening, born after 1995. Uh, An or. An ordinary word processor has the worst night of his life after he agrees to visit a girl in Soho he met that evening in a coffee shop. What'd you guys think? What'd you feel? Who would like to go first? John Dave, you're going to shit on it? I'll go John first go if you want me. Yeah, yeah, let me. Let me. Uh, all right. So first, I just want to put back in context very quickly. This was 1985. So 1980s Raging Bull. 1983? Three is King Yeah, 83. 83 is King of Comedy. This, the year mm-hmm. after, 86 is Color of Money, which is sort yep. of the sequel to The Hustler. Not really. I don't want to say that, but yeah, it's unofficial, but character, yeah. The Hustler. Yeah, it's there. And then we have some music videos like Dave was talking about. Bad. He's like, he's still making a lot of very prevalent things. He's still very much in the mix. And then 1990 is um, Goodfellas. So that's his 80s. Can I rant really quick? IMDb, go fuck yourself. Stop putting producer at the top. If someone's looking up Martin Scorsese, they don't give a fuck what he produced. Put director on top. We want to see what he fucking directed. You might as well put put additional credits or times he appeared on talk shows above directing. Why don't you do that, dickheads? Okay, sorry, what you guys saying? I'm telling you, dude, now that I'm here... Now that I'm here and now that I, now that I'm in it, like that is an industry thing, dude. The producers matter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I forgot one movie. Even though we don't know what they do. Last Temptation of Christ. So yeah. that's important because I want to kind of point out that like, hey, he was working on this. this is, time. It's almost like it's almost like you look at a. He's. I'm not saying he's average Joe. He's 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 obviously an artist and you know he's doing his thing. When you look at his body of work in the '70s, you can almost see like. What happened culturally in America to his work in the 80s? Like, there's just a, a style change. There's an aesthetic shift. There's a subject matter shift. There's there's a different perspective on life in America when he's making these movies. So I could I kind of tried not to divorce myself from that when I sat down to watch. I tried to think of it as this is where it was in his canon. And this mm-hmm. is kind of the kind of thing he was thinking about and what was happening in the world. And he chose to make at this point in 1985 this isolated slice of life suspense anxiety film mm-hmm. <laughs> almost yeah. and it's 41 you know this I mean, 1980s and then they thing. put it under a black comedy banner they put it under the black comedy yeah. i also want to with respect to to the maestro i think he was still doing a lot of drugs at this time i don't think he had totally stopped yet. oh good that explains he a lot was, yeah, I think he was still. I, I don't think I've what? heard like an exact timeline, but he has talked about Jeff. Do you know some? I don't. No, was he on cocaine? Yeah, he was doing a lot of a lot of a lot of coke and a lot of I drugs he, for a while. I don't think he needed it. <laughs> I think he sorry, would say the sorry, same thing. I know that's <laughs> but for a while, you know, as he talks about this in the GQ article too, I've heard him talk about it a lot. But he 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 did at one point, like artists do. Like we tend to do at some points, he really wanted to see what that kind of lifestyle was like. So he dove all the way in and he almost fucking killed himself. He had like two heart attacks. So like amidst this time in the eighties, when everybody was doing a lot of cocaine and everybody, you know, in quotes was doing just a whole lot of partying. Uh, He was at that age. He was in his thirties into his forties in this decade. And I don't know. I just I tried not to think of it as like this is just another movie and it happens to take place in 1985. I was trying to think of the man who made it and when he made it. Um, and I feel like this is a 
if you look at it that way, I think this is an intense reflection of his psyche at the time. I feel like he was at a place where he was really frustrated with the industry. Like you just said, he was like, fuck it. I want to go back and do what I did well that time. I want to go back and I want to make this shotgun movie in the streets of New York City, the place I know. Without the pressures from these big studios, I want to try to run and gun it. I want to get back to a really, really, really intense single character perspective where the world is swallowing them whole. And I want to still try to find a way to have fun with it because it's 1985 and I got to have fun with it. It's not the 70s where cynicism was selling. Cynicism didn't sell in 1985 in the same way it did commercially in that economy. Except for Reagan was in office. This is the greed is good era, right? Mm. This is this is the Reagan era. Things were shifting. This is well post Vietnam. Those echoes were now something that was. It had shifted. It, it was not still something that you could rally behind. It was it, we were supposed to have moved on by then, and I think this is a a really interesting reflection of that. I went back after I finished it last night and rewatched some sequences because it was almost it almost felt like it went by so quickly. I wasn't even really holding on to it. Kind of felt like I was like holding on to the back of a how train. Much, a how much bit. coke were you doing? Not enough, apparently. <laughs> Honestly, I think I would have had. I think I would have had a little bit more fun if I had had some shit up my nose. <laughs> I knew but I was gonna get that, buzzed, so I was hitting the button back. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, but ultimately, you guys, <sighs> I want to make a couple comparisons that I think you'll appreciate because I think Ari Aster is a fucking genius. But y'all remember, I did not care for Bo is Afraid. Yeah. And ultimately, I struggle with some of the Safety Brothers movies because they also these men tend to work in in a place of anxiety. Whether or not they do it consciously, I'm not going to judge that. But I feel as an audience member that that is like their their that is where they work from. That's their heart center. This is one of the only times where I felt like Scorsese was kind of doing that the whole time, except for the ending. Howard Shore's score rescued the end of this movie for me and Scorsese's camera movement rescued the end of this movie for me. Cause for a while I was getting that similar feeling where I was like, what is the point of this yeah, ding, other ding, ding, than ding. escalating anxiety? But by the time he got back up into his office for the next day, I was ready to laugh when he walked with the elevator doors opened at the end of the movie and he's covered in the plaster, paper mache plaster. I was like, okay, I guess this was funny, but again, what the fuck was the point? And the expression of the ending, the music that came on when he sits down, and the way the camera just begins winding oh, in yeah. and out of the office. During the it credits, It gave me right? some kind of breathing room, some kind of reprieve that allowed me to find the joy I was looking for. Because I'm not going to say I was miserable. I didn't. I did not dislike the movie. But I kept having that feeling where I was like, is anything else going to happen with the story or is it just this over and over and over again? And there was some, that punctuation, I don't know, it did something to me. It made me want to go back and watch some sequences and get back to that ending one more time. So ultimately, it's not my kind of Scorsese movie if you're if you're going to push me into a corner. But there there is something to take away from this. And if I was his friend, if I knew him and he made this, I think I would be like, dude, high five! Like you've never made anything like this before. That's Good my favorite. That's my successful. favorite John saying. My favorite I mean, John saying is, if my friend made this, I'd be proud of them. I mean, my this is this is my this is my favorite John roundabout because he took eight minutes to get to that point. Hmm. <laughs> oh come on! I, I, that's, that's hey, there was fun along the way. You're talking shit about your co-host. I usually take. I am the Jason Bateman of our Dave. podcast. <laughs> Dave, 
Yes. Is this is this movie where you got your catchphrase for when you come, Surrender Dorothy? Dude, you will never watch <laughs> The Wizard of Oz the same again after this film. Um, <laughs> that is so funny. That line was so no, funny. I, I, yeah, I, no, I like, it's I just like really to, funny. I like to tell them they're not in Kansas anymore as I put it in. Okay, hold on. I want to. I want to go. <laughs> what is the bu- what? What percentage Jesus. of buzzes Poor have gone Kansas. to Dave? This guy? he started this. He started this. Just this is what where we don't tell Teresa. <laughs> Dave just gets buzzed the entire episode. Um, so I'm with John. I'm with Dave. Did you give your thoughts yet? No. Go ahead. No, Ian. Oh shit. He's about oh. to. I'm already dump here. Truck all no, no, I, I, I agree, and and I will say this also sort of like personally coincided with. I watched the the series, the season finale of Only Murders in the Building. Apparently, it was renewed the day of the finale coming out, um, and also Fosse Verdon, which we talked about. And Fosse Verdon was fun because you know we was like we were like, oh, this is how it the mo- it started. It's ending where it started, and I was like, okay, why? <laughs> you know, it's like it's you know it's great that they're doing that, but what's the reason? There has to be a reason for that. It can't just be oh, that's fun. This is where we started, um, because they can do whatever they want. They're Have you ever done Fosse choreography? John has. He's in a very female-heavy class, and apparently it was many, many, many aw- apparently yeah. it was yeah. awesome <laughs> to be. I in. mean, the show I'm doing at the uh, moment is Pippin. So, oh, sure, 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 sure. I've seen some. Did you say Sean Bean is playing Pippin? No, the show <laughs> I'm doing. Say? The show. What are you Google API? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like... guys, I want ChatGPT around so that I can get the Sean Bean Pippin really quick. <laughs> oh, um, so anyway, I <laughs> does you. jump in the fire at the end. <laughs> This movie's fun. It's it's funny knowing it's funny knowing it's a, a comedy because it's it's a comedy, but it's not hilarious. Um, it's I can tell that Scorsese's having fun, but at the same time, he is taking it very seriously. I wish I didn't know that like the ending wasn't set ahead of time, and they kind of like tried to like figure out the ending because the the way that it ends, I almost it's almost like is he making a bold point? And we'll talk about the ending later. But I was like, I think he's saying something with this. But I kind of knew that he didn't have an ending when he started, like when he really got into it. So I was like, well, maybe Hmm. anyway, well, we'll never we'll never know his intention. But I'm curious to talk more about the ending. But I think the big takeaway is after a while, you start to wonder. Is there actually a point or is everything just meant to twist and turn? But there's no pinch at the center of the onion. Now, there's nothing there's nothing at the center of the onion. Is it just really clever? You know, I think I think Scorsese said this was a Chinese riddle or Chinese puzzle uh, in one of his yeah, quotes. A finger trap. Um, yeah, and it was Joe Minion. It was twenty six apparently when he wrote this, and he was at Columbia Film School, and he wrote it as a film school, and it's very well done, of course. But what's the point? Got a C minus. Is a question that I did ask myself. <laughs> he got an A on this, um, but the, I, I am I do wonder that. At the same time, I also know that they were going for it, that they really yeah, wanted it. this, and maybe there is a point. Maybe there is. Maybe there is, but it was fun for the most part. If it was any longer, it wouldn't have been much fun, but I think it was fun. And I'm curious to talk about it with you all because there were some really fun scenes, but ultimately I'm wondering if it was just a little too clever and a little less purposeful than it could have been. Where do you think it falls in your Scorsese canon? Pretty low, but, but that's just because it's him. I know. know. Yeah. It's still, I, I love yeah, Cape Fear. Honestly, I think Hugo, if you accept the fact that he's making it for his grandson, it's fucking gorgeous. You know? Like, yeah, he, totally. he's, yeah. yeah. Dave? Dave? 
I will tell you this: this movie will make you ask, "Where are they going with this?" So many times. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. like because it's listed as a black comedy, I was expecting some comedy, and pretty much none of the comedy sells until they get to the ice cream truck. After that, there were a couple of laughs. There was one laugh out loud. Probably helps there's Catherine O'Hara. Um, yeah, well, no, it was it was after and that. I owns I, a Mr. Softy truck? How funny it, is yeah, that? Yeah, it finally gave me some laughs. But it this, the writing was just terrible. Jesus, Dave. I can one of those times where you were going to surprise no, me and say it you is, loved it. It is well directed <laughs> and I can see what he's doing and I love the style, but I'm just wondering why he picked this script. I know, yeah, yeah. Because his lawyers said some of the dialogue is, is terrible. Easy, yes. His lawyers were it's gonna, like, sure. It's per, like it has a perfectly eighties portrayal of women, which means this does not age well. Um, because it's men writing for women, and all the women are crazy. In the movie, I it's think just, that's true. The, the just, men weren't it just not didn't, crazy. It didn't. I fucked I mean, up. Well, Fuck yeah. the king of comedy is eighty two. Shit, I feel but like also, an also, it, it just like, it. none of none of the comedy sold for me at all. Until yeah. I think until Cheech and Chong came through the roof, <laughs> which is there pretty lot, far along Cheech in the movie. Cheech and Chong are in this movie, folks. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of random people in this movie. This cast yeah. is Cheech, crazy. Cheech and Chong are in this movie as you know, Cheech is in this movie as a Mexican robber. So yeah, <laughs> again, another famous '80s trope. It's just were they robbers just, or were they just? What no, they were. Like, they were. They were walking. They were running around. The, no, she. He. That's the one thing he bought was her sculpture. Everything else in that truck was stolen out of people's apartments. They were the robbers. They did steal yeah. the sculpture, you know, so like we do know that that was definitely theft. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just, this just didn't sit with me at all. It was, I was bored. Um, half the scenes didn't make sense. Were you stressed this weekend, Dave? Was, no, not really. I was just like, I think I, again, I fell in the same thing. Like when you put a certain label on something and you expect a certain standard and this didn't meet it at all. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you're alone. I feel like, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get into spoilers just so we can I chat, chat, chat about movie. it. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, <clears throat> although I will say, I've had a night like this, not not with dead people, but uh, like it was one of those adventures where you just kind of go with the flow, and you end up in a strange loft apartment, and then their dog escapes, and you you're too drunk, so you overplan how to get the dog back. And then there's some other weird shit happening with the girl in the corner and you're not a part of it. So you're going to get the visual cues of her story. And then everyone splits up to find the dog. You end up seven bars and two other apartments. I've had that night in New York city. So too, it should have, yeah. it should have resonated with me a little bit, but have, have you, a have lot of drink. it, a lot of it just didn't. I Did think you a lot of New Yorkers have had that kind of night. And, right. And I do think it's important to point out that like, I wonder how difficult this movie is to watch in this time period where the crux of his premise is that he really is stranded downtown. Yeah. That it is a almost not impossible, but it would be hours for him to walk back mm. to his house. And he's but, just, he keeps thinking he might have a chance to get a little bit of cash yeah. so he can get into the subway or get into a cab. So that just doesn't fly anymore. You kids, know, it's just something kids, it's, it's a like, premise It's that like when you're exist. trying to get out of the city on New Year's Eve. <laughs> and you can't get an Uber. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. yeah. No buzz. I, uh, that's it. But you know, I mean, this this movie has like this has always been like a little bit of an enigma to me. There is an eighties quality. It's a track inside an enigma. Uh, yeah, honestly. There is an eighties quality to the subject matter, to the sequencing, 
but I've never really quite been able to put my finger on for how those aesthetics and how that those styles really got their footing in the 80s. Like, mm. I'm still waiting to see the movie that did it so successfully that I understand why people did it that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and this is this is one of those where, like, I never felt like I was not in the hands of a very confident, skilled director. Like you said, Dave, like, yeah. I knew what, he knew what he was doing when he was doing Although it. Although at one point I, I wondered... did say out loud, oh, my fucking God, stop moving the camera. There was just oh, too much. It, it was like he went nuts with it. It's like I'm making a five-minute film and I'm giving every piece of thing I have. And it, it that just... one, the one that he kept doing, like the yeah, the you know, I mean, the, the pullout was the pullout was kind of cool, but like the only one I actually liked was when he was sitting in the diner and the camera went around him to show it was outside the window. Like that was cool. that was a you great know, shot. But these fast speed ins on the phone and like cameras moving yeah, for no reason, I was just like, I'm fucking seasick. You know what I liked? So, I liked the one because 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 it was class. I loved when he goes to her apartment for basically, and she's going to take a shower really quick. And then she's like, you got, you smoke weed. I got joints over there. And he goes, no, I, not now, maybe later. And then it zooms in on her and she's smiling. And then it kind of zooms in on him. He's smiling. Cause it's basically his way of being like, I don't like to have sex after weed, but I'd love to smoke weed after I have sex. And they did that with the camera. And so mm. I like that where it's like, instead of doing it as a suspense move, which is I didn't like, even suspense, notice suspense, that suspense. one. So that was a good one. That was it for me because of the smirks. I the one thing I did notice in this that really stuck out is actually two things. Number one is that, and I don't know where the so this is a weird science here. So the John Hughes era Breakfast Club obviously came out too. Sorry, whatever, whatever. It's like the monologues, the story monologues sometimes work and sometimes don't. But I do think the eighties did them pretty well, especially in those coming of age movies. And and not all I don't always like stories when people are just like telling their story in movies. But I feel like they did them pretty well in here. I mean that six hour rape story was really like gripping and i was kind of like well then they kind of tried to play it off as a joke and i'm like that was yeah exactly that was not funny at all that could have really advanced it It didn't necessarily advance it which is too bad but but it did something and i i still i just don't know what that something Mm -hmm. was and honestly Mm. i don't know if the director knows what the something was either but um the other thing though it's it's, black comedies are hard to do yeah he probably shouldn't have been a black comedy but i'm glad he was having fun with it i think with with that hard to pivot from this the six hour story into this but i did notice that marty marty is a romantic with the camera i feel like he probably fucks better with the camera than his penis i like he like the, the, the way he's do, do i buzz that eyes. i'm gonna buzz that <laughs> mainly for the, the way, logistics the way he the first scene everybody's we, good at something <laughs> that first scene where we meet uh, Rosanna Arquette in the diner, you know, and, and of course it has taxi driver vibes. So I, I'm sure he probably, you know, th- th- there's an American werewolf in London line that was clearly 80 yard in. So he's he's obviously wink winking. He's fucking around. Like, I don't know. But like that diner scene, he, I'm sure his fans are going to think of taxi driver with that. He mm. probably was messing with them a little bit. But when he, she's talking about the book and he she goes sits next to him and such, whatever, like loner guy at the diner with the loner younger girl. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm sure that. But it was shot really romantically. Like the eyes were really popping. I just, I felt like there was some good romance. So then when things started to unravel, I was really interested because I felt like there was a connection that was being exploited. But then it just, as it got chaotic, more chaotic and more chaotic, I was, I, I just, I wish there was a through line to help me through it. But yeah, anyway, it became, I, I did too, appreciate it became too much like vignettes. It's like, we have this experience, then this experience, and they, they didn't really tie together cleanly. I know they come around with the, like the boyfriend and everything in the in the 
the bar, but yeah. it, it, none of it really fit together. How about the unibrow in our lead actor? Now that is something a movie studio would never do. <laughs> and the subway fare yeah. went up. Dave, our subway fare just went up. Just went How up. relatable is this movie just from that? What is it now, by the way? Give people a uh, context. Just fucking make it $3. Shut the and fuck it, up and make it $3, like, it's, you it's photo, like You can see them online. There's photos of people holding banners over the edges of the railing saying, fuck you, 290, at, at like train stations. And the subway service has never been worse than it has ever yeah. since they raised yeah. it. So it's <laughs> never been worse. Dave, Dave, after yeah, Dave. Um, after Buddy and Clyde, did you hate all those quick cutaways to the burn victim images in the book? As soon as it burn victim, burn victim, burn, I was like, like Dave wants to what sit the, at this What event. the hell? Like, the, there was the story of him. I don't understand with the, the burn thing. warden and the burn victim thing. Like, was there something cut, and that was just left in? Because <clears throat> that didn't make sense to me at all. Honestly, Jeff, now that you've said that this was written by a film student. Yeah, they didn't have an ending. Like he literally is, said, he'll is... do whatever I fucking want. Give me this goddamn script on Martin Scorsese. It was well, him or Tim Burton. Like, this is the kind of material that I feel like I I am encountering a lot at school. Like these, these insulated stories, not necessarily in vignette style, but things that are low budget, makeable, yeah. you know, s- simply told scenes between mm-hmm. actors you know, I feel, and now that you're saying that, like, I mean, it kind of does make sense that way. In the the pro version of looking at that, Dave, to what you said, like all these vignettes, I guess those vignettes were important to try to create his difficulty in explaining to the next person what he just went through. Oh, yeah. But but ultimately, there's a frustrating experience you have when you're watching, when you're watching that happen in movies where people can't just... Mm-hmm get on the same page so we can actually see something else happen next and not just the same thing happen next. Yeah. And I obviously mean, that was the, it's funny when, when he, they started chasing him through the streets with torches after like, they started thinking he was the robber. I started getting serious PCU vibes with that poor kid that goes to the college for the weekend and he ends up with a mob chasing him around the, the campus with torches. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, like, this is, I feel like PCU might've taken that from this film. This is Porky's. Do this movie? No, no, PCU, um, PC University. It's very, yeah, it's very, it's very hard to get hold of now. Um, I think it's another one they're sitting on the rights to. Um, Okay, but it's uh, yeah, I didn't. I was not familiar with that. Jeremy Piven and um, uh, what's his name directed Iron Man. John Favreau. John Favreau. Yeah, they're talking about that. Nice. He's an absolute stoner. Yeah. Yeah. The work. Uh, let me let me try to be positive here for a second, Jeff. Maybe you're gonna disagree with me. Let's see. Can't wait to see. Can't wait to find out. I thought a lot of the acting in this was really strong. Yeah, yeah. Like there's these are as Dave pointed out. Like they are basically vignettes of scenes. Yeah. And they are almost. Ig- yeah. They're almost divided into like. You meet a new person. You have a scene with a person. You have a scene where they exit his or he exits their their scenario and then he's on to another one. Yeah, so yeah. you're almost introduced to everybody in a fun kind of unique way or a passive way. You have a scene with them where it really is like a back and forth and then there's some fun exit and then everybody kind of comes mm. back into it towards the end when shit hits the fan. Um, so there's a lot of like 
supporting actors, supporting characters in this, if you if you will. I can just see the casting call sheet now, and and everybody's just thinking, oh, there's a new Scorsese movie out, and oh, I'm up for this part, but I'm only in like this one scene. I, I feel like that sentence got uttered quite a bit in 1983, hmm. sure. 1984. And the people that they have in it, everybody did really well. So just to give Scorsese and them a compliment, everybody was in the same movie. I'm not sure yeah. if I loved true, that movie. True, true, true. But they knew what they were doing, which was... I don't know how you get people in that space. Like, yeah. there's just the director in me is just kind of fascinated that that he was able to make sure everybody understood what the tone was because I don't know if I really got a grip on it the whole time. Mm. But it's not because I saw inconsistency from the performances, which is no. usually yeah. the most telling thing for why I, I'm not sure what the movie wants to be. It's usually the acting that tells you that. I think so my, fav- is, my favorite it, gag in it was the, the writing, s- isn't it? My favorite gag in it was the setup and the payoff of the burger. <laughs> when he wants the, to use the bathroom, yeah, he orders great. the burger, and then he runs back they, in there like yeah. half an hour later, and he just puts the uh, burger down. Burger. In front of him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, fantastic. Ah. Okay, so this right, movie so inspired let's... the movie Ghost because they stripped down into nothing and make. Yeah, in the lobs, the cobblestone streets, the and they they do the paper mache statue, basically naked. I mean, that's that's awesome. I mean, this movie probably inspired a few things. Guys, do you feel like not not John? (laughs) (laughs) Not John's birth. If you have, maybe they did it on this. If you have never uh, lived in New York, do you think this movie would be even more confusing to watch? Yes. Like the idea of downtown, like what the fuck does that mean? And I think it would be less confusing because I think I would just go with the flow, and be like, oh, New York, oh, okay, oh, oh and yeah, maybe things are really far That's away. The thing though, like you never, like even if you live here, like you never once think this is not set, like not filmed in New York because it was. It's true. Like, there's recognizable landmarks and right. stuff, right? And but, you couldn't yeah. just go to New York whenever you wanted, like we can now on our devices. You know, so yeah. I bet you that was a, an appeal back then. Not that you're totally right. I always said when I was living in New York, it's insane to me that people so casually would be like, "Yeah, you're gonna come meet us tonight." And be like, "Yeah, I'll travel an hour and forty five minutes by train to come." <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I would never I'll drive to Philadelphia growing up. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I, I would Where never do you live? Oh, we live about an hour into Brooklyn. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, we're just, yeah, we're just gonna. You know, I'm just gonna drive from Queens to Brooklyn. Starts the car, drives a block, stops. Like, no. Ridiculous, dude. Yeah. So I always thought that was funny. Jeff, I think you were hinting at it earlier, but I kind of, I, I just want to hear if you guys had any like <coughs> similar reactions that I did in a sense. I'm not saying I have the answer, but this movie that seemed to be about nothing may have been about the 80s or may have been about something greater. Well, I- because it did feel thematic to me. And maybe that the theme was actually the real pinch that you're talking about, Jeff, and it just wasn't in the literal storytelling. And there was something that I walked away with at the end of it, walked away. I was in bed and I fell asleep immediately afterwards, but <laughs> then I, then I went to sleep thinking about, which was that, and I think that punctuation I was talking about, just the way he ends it, the fact that he winds up back there, there is a version of this story that exists in any decade. You know, oh, yeah. this guy is a wild knight. He comes back and it was just a slice of life. It was a crazy slice of life, but it was a slice of life. And he's back to where he wants to be. And he's it's a very square job, a very predictable scenario. But I feel like there was something unique about this happening in 1985 that may have spoken to this contrast between work hard, play hard. It was like the decade where that became a real thing, where we had people- Yeah, Reagan's second terms. Yeah, 
We had a lot of people. If you look, if you were to ask somebody know. from an indigenous area of planet Earth to draw an American in 1985, they would have drawn a man in a working suit, right? With shoulder pads. And then pads. like, with shoulder pads, yeah. When he goes and he has this crazy night and he comes back and it's almost like, oh, we're released. But then Scorsese chooses to move his camera more kinetically and constantly than he ever has the entire movie in that last moment while this classical score is playing. Classical score is beautiful. We got Mozart in there. We got some good shit. It's yeah, good. I think it's. A, I think it ends with the Mozart too. And it was just, it just, I don't know. It just made me wonder if this was him kind of saying, if you think that we have it all figured out, because that was kind of the pitch, we made America great. That was Reagan's idea, right? Then you're a fucking insane person. Because when we're outside of these offices that you're saying are the perfect America situation, life is still fucking chaotic. I don't know. I don't know. That's Maybe what it is. Dude, I, I feel like you're tying up strings that are attached to nothing. I don't think any of that was in there, to be honest. Yeah. I well, feel like this. Maybe. I feel like this. I mean, I don't. I don't think. I mean, he, he may have put some of that intention in there, but it certainly didn't come across in the script. I think he, buzzers. Mm. Go ahead. Yeah. I think he. I think he was going for something. It opens at work because I mean, even in the pitch, an ordinary word processor. I know that's marketing, and it's not, but. He's a word processor. He's talking about work. He's at work. And he's basically dressed for work this whole movie. And then it ends with him back at work. And he goes in and he has the powder and he goes, fuck it. As long as I'm here at work on time, I might as well be here on all work. I do wonder if, and again, this could have just come because apparently he asked De Palma and Spielberg to basically say, help me with an ending. What's the ending of this movie? Sorry, Joe Minion. We don't need you. I know you wrote this, but I'm going to ask these these guys. I wonder if it is something about this work-life balance and you know this whole work hard play hard idea as you're saying john hmm. what they're what they are saying is is sort of what you're touching on which is i'm gonna burp yeah I was gonna say, <sighs> work-life balance it's, didn't exist in the 80s well i mean it's like it's we live in a sh- yeah well john just made a cocaine gesture with his nose there but it's this it's this idea of like it's mayhem everywhere there's just you know if, if you're that that's what's reality maybe it's just a new york thing at least at least they centered it here right the most specific is the most universal here if you want to go out and you just want to see a girl like this fucking chaos can happen and yeah it's absurd and it's a little unrealistic but at the same time it technically could happen and every night some one of these things happens to somebody every night my favorite line in the movie there's a lot is when he witnesses the, the murder which is terrible yep. of course across the block and then he just goes i'm probably gonna get blamed for that and it's like and then yeah that was my, on. one of my favorite gags in the movie too. and it's and how true is it right because that happens yeah. somewhere in the world there's a murder and somebody's gonna get blamed for it who didn't have anything to do with it yeah. and it's like so it's like it's like you work really hard so that you can live your life but you know what life in america in this time period is really trying very hard to fuck with you if you're 99 percent of this world yeah it's like the other half of the jeff goldblum line it's life finds a way to fuck you yeah that's yeah <laughs> So I'm with you. I do think the goal of this movie was, was work. Movie. I think I think work, because it's about this night, but it's the night where he's just trying to live his life. And look what happens when you just try to live your life. But the work is the one place where it's safe, it's secure, it's consistent, you know what you're going to get, and you know you have to do it. So if you find comfort and you find simplicity in that, that's an American. I mean, if you wanted to, you could tie together the fact that he was constantly, I just want to go home, and where he goes is work. Too. Yes, that's right. it, Dave. Right. See, I mean, that's Dave. That's exactly right, Wait, dude. No. That's what I kept thinking about. It's like, because Dave, you're right, dude. Like, it, Dave nailed it. It's not that. It's not that my point is literal in the script, 
but that is he for the second half of this movie after the midpoint he said he proclaims at least two or three times maybe more how badly he just wants to fucking go home yeah and if he had ended up at work at the end of this movie and but you're jeff you're i'm sure the end of this screenplay no no offense what was the screenwriter's name joseph minion yeah. No offense. I'm also, sure. I, I think what a great you, last you name for the writer of this movie. <laughs> Minion. Yeah. Minion. That's fantastic. I wouldn't be surprised if it ended with, and he came back to work as if, you know, almost like nothing had happened, you know, or something like very generic like that. That's very open that the, a director's like, God, what am I going to do with that? I got to I yeah. do something. I got to figure out a way to say something about what we just watched. But yeah, Dave, the fact that he, he doesn't just wind up at work and he's comatose. At least I felt this way. I felt like he was kind of grateful to be back there. So mm. it, in a sense, I that's that was like you just said, like for me, that kind of was like home. It wasn't like he wound up at work and he was like, no, I, no, like the, the least yeah. place I want to go. Like that would have been a very different statement for me. And I would have been a little bit more confused about what this movie was about. But he goes up, he goes through those golden gates, the elevators open, he sits down and he seems to be happy to be away from the chaos and it was almost like this was like a the most fucked up like subverted mm. campaign commercial for reagan's agenda that i mean I, when the, you know like I mean, when the camera seen. does the <laughs> second circuit he is gone from his desk i, I do they do you think they did that as a statement or that do you think they did jump that? cut where or, he's or, not there anymore or do you think they did that to make the office look bigger i thought it was just a to make the office, are you talking about yeah. that jump cut where they swing around? No, they they eventually That's track a, back to his desk and come past it, and he's not there, and he's gone. I thought it was just to make the the it office must, look bigger, I, personally. Yeah, maybe you're right. That it was just to just look like we're just moving through this, this giant been, office building now. The eighties was also the time period for like the boring person who has like the secret, where they're actually like secretly like interesting and special. <laughs> and so I I kind of think that that maybe Joe wrote a script. Where he was like, these people who you think are just, I'm sorry, but let me read it again. An ordinary word processor. Secretly, they had this amazing life that happened to them. And I bet you Marty was kind of like, fuck that. that. What we're saying is <laughs> these people go home and they masturbate and eat Chinese food and go to sleep because life fucking sucks in this. Like, it's, it, it's hard to live life. It's hard to live life. And honestly, you're sitting there watching these people. You can't tell me as an audience member, you didn't sit there and watch the person like doing the sculpture and throwing keys. It's like, do they do this every night? That's fucking exhausting. How do they guys, do this? Might, well, hold on, wait. Here, this might be the pinch. How did you guys feel? Because I don't think it was telegraphed at all. I think it was actually pretty subtle. But when he goes home after he meets her at the diner and he decides to call her, and then that wasn't surprising to me, but I thought, you know, in another gotta, story, he just asks her to dinner another night. And she says, yeah, come and see me. Well, right now? Yeah, come down and see me. And we're assuming that he lives somewhere around Midtown because he's hmm. he's around office buildings. Or at the very least, the working part of downtown. Not he, did, he does he does say the address at one point. It's like, I think it's in the 80s. 91st. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's like way up 90s, there on the yeah. east side. I think it's Upper East. Yeah, I think it's Upper East too. <laughs> 91st and something on the east side. And she says, come down. And when he's like... No, we've all been men trying to score before. We're old enough. We, we all know what that feels what? like. We would probably travel as far as we needed to travel. But there was a little bit Unless of me it was another like, this is the... Sure. <laughs> I don't, you don't date across the boroughs. Maybe no. you hook up across boroughs. You don't date across boroughs. When he chooses to go see her, though, at the end of that scene, for me, that was the really jumping off point of this movie. I was like, wow, he's 
there's no guarantee. He knows he's going to her friend's house too, her friend's apartment. It's not like she was saying, come to my apartment. I want to hook up. It wasn't like that. This is before Tender, folks. He was just going on a whim down to fucking Soho, which is like an hour from where he lived at least to go see this woman who was staying at her friend's apartment for the evening. He didn't know any other details. And I guess for me, for what we're talking about now with the ultimate theme, there was a part of me that exactly what you said, Jeff, like, did you guys get a sense that he doesn't normally do this? And he was like, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to try to live my life. That, of tonight. course. Yeah. I'm going to try yeah. to go for it. He was about to just sit around I, yeah. reading Arthur Miller books. <laughs> Not plays. Henry Miller. Henry Miller. Not Arthur uh, Miller. Hmm. Well, the synopsis is wrong on the one that I'm reading that. I thought I was doing good research. Sorry, Isn't what were you Henry Miller, Henry Miller book that he was reading? I mean, that, that makes a whole lot more sense than a Henry great American Miller playwright. <laughs> the Arthur Miller. I mean, yeah, it's Henry Miller. Because I, when I first saw it, I thought it was well, that too. Well, IMDb, I was like, I didn't know he wrote they got to get their novels. They got to get their shit up. Because they talk about, oh, it's way better than Capricorn. It's way better than Cancer. His he has books on Tropic Capricorn, Tropic Cancer. Anyway, um, so yeah, I think you guys are. I think you're totally right. And I think we, I think we nailed it. And I guess all I'm going to ask is to th- to two people who like me did not love this movie. It didn't It didn't grab me by the balls the way he usually does. I wonder if I was an adult in the working community of 1985, if I would have resonated with this differently than watching it now as you know, somebody who's not in that world at all in a much much later time where that world doesn't really exist in the same way and I mean, the most, absurdity may not likely. have landed in the same way. Most likely. Also, you know, the, the, the cast at the time would have, would have been enough of a draw. <clears throat> Fucking great cast. Yeah. R- rail them off for us, Dave. Hit us, hit us up with these. It doesn't matter I mean, what the character Griffin names Dunn, are. Griffin Dunn, Rosanna Arquette, um, Cheech and Chong, Linda Fiorentino, John Hurd's in there, Catherine O'Hara's in there, Will Patton's not, in there. Not like, stars at the time, but yeah. Yeah. Not it, but... For like, us, yeah. I mean, Cheech and Chong, they knew. Yeah, and well, and also Griffin Dunn was in American Werewolf in Paris, which I think rented really well. I think it was a huge rental thing. So yeah, that that's, was, probably, um, that's probably how we got his producer oh, that had, credit up. That had a huge uh, following outside of America. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And I think we all need to just ask, do you think Christopher Columbus was just a huge fan of this movie and that's why he cast Catherine O'Hara? Oh, yeah. And uh, She was doing and, comedy. Uh, what's his name? What's his name? Uh... John Hurd. John, John Hurd. Yeah. So just, John Hurd and, and Catherine O'Hara were actually, they actually had a conversation Yeah. in this movie. They actually talked. It's pretty funny. Pretty funny that they were both the in parents it. parents from Home Alone were here. that coming. You think Macaulay watched this for research before the first uh, Home Alone? I don't know, but I, just I think, can't I think we can... Uh... I think you think you can wrap, wrap it up, Dave? Is that what you're trying to say? I, I, is that what you're trying I mean, to say? Dave's ready we're, to wrap it up. We're an hour and 15 in. <laughs> oh, and Johnny Dangerously was another movie that um, Clifton Dunn was in. Clifton, I keep fucking doing that. Yeah, Griffin Dunn. Dunn. That's a, that's another guy. That's an actor in New York City. People he look is. him up. Yeah, I did a Dave, show. We stayed, we slept fun, in a dorm room guy. one time. I worked with him recently. Yeah, Joe Piscopo was in this movie. Yeah, Clifton Dunn. Yeah, Clifton Dunn. Clifton. What Dunn. did you work with him in? Not Griffin. It's not Dunn. this guy. Dunn. Not Griffin. Guys, we not can't, Griffin. We, Dunn. Our, yeah, yeah. He we was were, in Succession. We were on a we were on a shoot for uh, an anthology horror film a couple of weeks ago. It's crazy. 
Get out. Rosanna Arquette. You know, I watched Pulp Fiction recently, and oh yeah, she's yeah, just nuts. So different in that. Anyway, all right. Well, I'm still gonna recommend it because I don't think any of us had watched this movie before. No. I'm a huge Scorsese fan. I think Jeff and Dave both can either really enjoy his movies or consider themselves huge fans as well. And I won't be recommending this blind one, spot. Mm. No, yeah, you're not gonna recommend it. But if you're a huge Scorsese fan, I still think you should watch it. Just because it's interesting that it dedicated a couple years of his life. I feel like this was a swing and a miss. Did you catch Scorsese's cameo? Did you guys yeah. see him? Yeah. Wait, I didn't. Shit. Fuck. It's in the German uh, in the German club. Uh, Berlin. Berlin. They oh, pan up to him, right. and he's shining the spotlight on people below, uh, fully yeah. bearded. Course, he he didn't mean to have a cameo. They just couldn't afford a fucking grip. <laughs> Fun stuff. Weird movie. Hey, Howard Shore. I, I'll, I'll just share this last little bit. Yeah. Also, Howard let's not forget. Shore. Let's not forget Rocket's Red Glare. I saw that. Yes. Did I send that to you guys? <laughs> yes. Rocket's yes, Red Glare. Did. That was the name of a stunt guy or something. Rocket's Red Glare. Is that the stunt guy in After Hours? Like, I didn't know even what you guys were sending that for. Yes. Is an angry. It was billed as angry mob member. Yeah. Rocket. That's fantastic. Red Glare. That's his that name. Is Come fantastic. on. That's on his He's card. definitely That's on in his por- sad card. He's yep. definitely in a porn, right? He's definitely in a porn. <laughs> I'll just share this last part because I thought this was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I watched Scorsese's masterclass. <laughs> and when it gets to the section, fuck you. And when it gets to the section <laughs> no, where he's talking okay. about sc- scoring, he's like, you know, I don't really score most of my movies. I usually use songs. But really I did this sense. movie called After Hours and I got to meet Howard Shore. And Howard Shore, you know, he's even he's fucking brilliant. He was just talking about how Howard Shore really like kind of, kind of taught him and showed him how score could accompany, you know, movies. It's just funny to think that a score, a filmmaker that accomplished, because Howard Berman, not Howard Berman, Howard Berman. So who the fuck did? Oh my God, John, I've been drinking all day. Who did the fucking score to Taxi Driver and, and all of Hitchcock's films? Ber- Bernard Herman. <laughs> Bernard Herman. God damn it. Bernard Herman did Taxi Driver, yes, but he literally like did it and died. It wasn't like they had a back and forth and this massive collaborative experience. He like did it and then like immediately passed away. And they used the music. So this Scorsese was citing this with After Hours is one of the first times that he really like worked with a composer. And found kind of the evolution of what score can do. And I just thought it was interesting that Howard Shore, who eventually went on to do Silence of the Lambs and, of course, Lord of the Rings. And he's very known for his large orchestral pieces when he started out. And he started out as like the SNL music manager. Like he does all that. He wrote all the music for Saturday Night Live and had a really interesting connection to that show. But with movies, he really exploded with this kind of synthy stuff with in the 80s with David Cronenberg movies and and after hours, this really synth heavy stuff. But I still thought it was refreshing and cool to hear Scorsese admit that like I really didn't know how to score movies. And Howard Shore kind of took me under his wing and talked to me about all, all the things we could do. We can disagree about whether or not they were effective. But this movie feels unlike a lot of other Scorsese movies, I think, because of the score. It felt different than a lot of his other ones. It, and there was more music than normal. Was it similar to... Um... The composer of Annie, Charles Strauss, writing that music in Bonnie and Clyde. It was exactly that. I want to see Hans Zimmer. I want to see Hans Zimmer and Howard Shore have a fucking Howard Shore has passed away. I want to. I wish I could have seen them have a synth off 
because I, I Hans Zimmer used to be in a synth band. Didn't didn't I shouldn't spread that shit. I shouldn't spread it. Howard Shore has not passed away. Oh, hold on. I was like, what? Howard, keep writing music. <laughs> he is still going. <laughs> yeah, he is still on. Oh my god, the look roll. on John's face when I said that. He was so yeah, worried. Yeah, I wish you could say. I was like, oh my god, my heroes. Michael Phillips won an Oscar. What was his Oscar for? Dave, we're never going to wrap this up. Just, I know. Just I mean, I'm gonna, we're going to no. put a fucking disclaimer to listen what did to he win? two times What did he win? <laughs> what did he win? What did he win his Oscar for? Michael, is Michael Phillips the cinematographer? Uh, Michael Phillips uh, is, the, is the... Oh, no, never mind. Just, just forget it. Let's just move on. Wow, that was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you guys uh, soon. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to finish up this episode the way we always finish our episodes with a quick round of What You've Been Watching where we give you our recommendations of the week and tell you what we've been watching. Guys, Dave, we'd like to start with you. What you've been watching this week? I wrapped up Ahsoka. Um, finished, finished the episodes. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I thought they've set up so much good stuff. Um, if you've seen Rebels, they've set up some great stuff from there that they're now going to touch on in live action. Um, a lot of people didn't get how one thing ends, like one of the ending images worked and it, it's it's a direct lead into something that happened in Rebels. So I'm pretty fucking excited about that. I'm looking forward to... I. There was something where Disney changed it from the uh, series finale to the season finale. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping they get a second season before Ooh. they move on to the movie. Um, it's going to be a shame we don't get the same Sith guy back because he was fucking phenomenal. Great. <laughs> nerd. Oh. Pippin. <laughs> What'd you say, nerd? <laughs> I don't know. It's an it, 80s trope you just did there, John. Very good. 85. You guys are going to have one last note on After Hours. Scorsese won Best Director at Con that year. For what? Wait, I thought he... No, oh, no, he, 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 won, he won Best Director. He didn't win the Palm d'Or, but he won Best Director, yeah. <laughs> Nominated for Palm d'Or, won Best Director. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I've just been... I've been busy as fuck this week, so just uh, continuing with Downton Abbey. We're, we're almost done with it. And I, I, I'm cool. into the area of the show that I kind of dropped off in last time. Matthew's dead. Sorry, folks, but that fucking Dude! happens. If you haven't seen it, you're way behind, and I don't feel bad for you at all. Jeff said last, he walked away from his contract. Jeff, they are brutal. Him, <laughs> O'Brien, they both walked away from their contracts, and they are not letting them forget about it. They are no. talking so much shit <laughs> yeah, about yeah. their characters. Yeah, it's yeah, unreal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So funny. <laughs> How about you? Um, I so I finished Fosse Verdon, which is brilliant. I think it got to the God. point where where I was like, there are two acting notes to two of the actors, and I was sitting there, and finally I'm sitting with Angela, and I'm like, just so I think, just to be clear, I think the reason that I'm being picky about this is because I care so much. Like they did such a good job of yeah. drawing me in, and none of the notes, it. none of the notes were about those two lead actors. They were so good, but him, when when he's like basically decrepit, his post heart attack before his death. And he's like at readings or, or he's like watching a rehearsal of Sweet Charity and, and he's, you just see his face like watching it. It's like, I mean, he just is so dropped in, man. He's so good. And then we finished Only Jeff, Murders. did it make you want to, sorry? Go, go ahead. I've, did it make you want to watch all of his movies? I feel like I felt that way at the end oh, of Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I pitched Cabaret as a, as a musical to one of my uh, students who has to work on a song from a show and has to give like basically a dog and pony show of the whole thing to people. And I was like, I'm, I'm fucking giving you a song from Cabaret so that you have to pitch it to everybody. And the movie's different, but I, I need you to watch it. I need you to see it. Um, <laughs> but but I really want to go back and rewatch all that jazz. Um, and Only Murders in the Building wrapped up. Final season. Or no, 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 sorry. There's another season. It's, this probably just should have been it. 
So it's too bad that the season with Meryl Streep and Paul Rudd is so obviously the weak link in this series, but um, ultimately it was good. I just, I just feel, you know what's funny? They clearly made it not to binge. Because I think I told you in the past that somebody had a heart attack. Did I tell you this? No. I don't okay. Oh, it. okay. I keep forgetting to bring it up. One of the characters has a heart attack at the end of an episode. And then the next episode, so like go to the hospital, like call 911. Oh my God, he has a heart attack. Ah. Next episode, are we in the hospital for like a second? And then we're just back to the podcast solving crime as if nothing happened. It was so clearly a bullshit suspense thing for the week that happened again this week where there was this courtroom scene. They had extras, they had a judge and the end of the episode, they storm into the courtroom and it's like, "Ah!" and then this episode, they never even mention it. It's like they're doing shit. They're doing stuff where it's like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? It's honestly to the point where you're like, can you just tell me who did it? You know, so, so, Ultimately, it was good. And honestly, the last episode was like better than most of the episodes this season. But it was just like the damage was done. I can't believe they did Meryl Streep dirty like that. Like her first episode, the first couple episodes, it's so good. And then after that, it's like, honestly, it's and I, it's really funny because I actually know or I knew, I should say, one of like the writer producers and like some of the other people on the show. So I feel bad saying this out loud. But like it kind of seems like it was written by like children. Like it's too bad that like Steve, Steve Martin, Martin Short and Meryl Streep are in this show. Well, and then some of the songs are bad. So it's like you have these legends and I feel like the people giving them the stuff. Martin Sh- Martin Short was amazing this season. So watch out for him in the Emmys. Nope, it's too late because he's going to be up for next season. Anyway, but I, I just I feel like the writing just didn't live up to them. I feel like the writing was 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 people who were not on their level. And it's too bad. Mm, so what sucks. next week should we spin? Oh, sorry, Dave, John, go ahead. If it's one saying, more I, fucking Scorsese fact. I did watch I did watch I Tanya last night with Elizabeth. Uh, I oh. told you I watched Dumb Money last week, Craig yeah. Gillespie's new film. Mm-hmm. I watched yeah. I Tanya with her. Still fucking hilarious and entertaining and compelling filmmaking. I love oh. that director. I started, What's our year, Dave? I, I started the Quantum Leap reboot on uh, on that, Peacock. So far, it's kind of holding is that up. A new show that it's come that just new, came out. It's two seasons in. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's. I'm only in the first episode, so too early to tell, but. It, it seems to be okay. Alright. I drank. Turn my drink thing Quantum off. Quantum leap. Alright, let's uh let's find out where we're going. Ooh. Uh, we're going into the DeLorean. Ooh. Sound effect. Yeah. We're what throwing it in reverse, podcast. guys. We're going to nineteen fifty-eight. I'm out. Bye. Nineteen fifty eight. Exciting. Re- Check the socials. We will announce our uh, our movie. <laughs> Of them. See you next time, Phil fans. Thanks for sticking around. Peace!